your Bibles with me. Let's look again at the book of Romans in chapter 4. The book of Romans in chapter 4. Our focus on this Lord's Day will be uh, verses 13 through 17. And we're going to look at the first three of those verses this morning. So Romans 4 verses 13 through 15 is where we will be focusing. Romans 4. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. This is the word of God. Let's hear what he says to us. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This morning, I am going to be preaching to you again the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to be seeking to help us again grasp the truth that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if you've been with us over the past several weeks, or really the past several months, it may sound to you like we are just beating the same drum over and over and over again. And that's because we are. And quite frankly, it's because this doctrine, this truth, is that important. Paul doesn't cover the gospel, the, the, the doctrine of salvation of, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, he doesn't cover that in, in two or three verses and then move on to something else. Rather, he, he writes paragraph after paragraph after paragraph in this book of Romans, reinforcing and supporting this truth. He knows how important this doctrine is. Heaven and hell hang in the balance lose this doctrine, and we are truly lost forever. Our flesh does not like justification by faith alone. Our flesh does not like the truth that sinners are made right with a holy God by faith in Jesus alone, because that means that God gets all the glory. It means that we are helpless sinners who owe our salvation entirely to the grace of God. And in our fresh, fleshly pride, we do not like that. And so it's no surprise that ever since the fall of man, there has never been a moment when the gospel wasn't being twisted and distorted by persons. And so that's why we need to beat this drum again and again. We, we need to have this seed so firmly planted and firmly and deeply into our souls so that our own flesh won't lead us to reject this gospel and to fall away from Christ. Satan does not like this doctrine of justification by faith alone. He hates it for the same reason our flesh does, because it brings all glory to God. As we will see again, God's way of salvation exalts God's wisdom, exalts God's power, exalts God's goodness, exalts God's grace. Satan abhors God. 
Satan has made himself God's enemy. Satan is at work to undermine and obscure the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if Satan is seeking to obscure the gospel of Jesus Christ, what do we need to be doing? Making it clear over and over and over again. It is our pleasure to irritate the devil. It is our pleasure to do the very thing that Satan hates, preach the truth. It is our pleasure to be in warfare against him and to overcome his attacks on the gospel with the clarity of the Holy Scriptures. We need to beat this drum because our flesh doesn't like the gospel, Satan doesn't like the gospel, and our world does not like the gospel. The gospel. The gospel means that sin is a reality. The gospel means that God's wrath is real. The gospel means that there is only one way of salvation. The gospel is in no way politically correct. It does not fit in with the ways of our society. We live in a stream that is flowing in one direction. If we believe the gospel, we will be traveling in the opposite direction. And so we keep beating this drum. The world may not like the gospel, but the world needs the gospel. And as we preach it, the Holy Spirit has the power to change people's hearts so that what they once found offensive they now find to be very sweet. So that's the kind of work we pray that the Spirit will do even here this morning. So yes, Paul spends a lot of time on the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Romans. And therefore, as we go verse by verse, we're spending a lot of time on this. God wants us to spend a lot of time on this. This ought to be pleasant for us. This ought to be heartwarming to us. I mean, if you're going to spend weeks and weeks on a subject, can you find a better subject to spend weeks and weeks on than the blessed gospel itself? So I hope that your soul will be fed and will be encouraged as we dive again into the good news. By the way, please don't think that I'm apologizing for preaching the gospel. We'll never apologize for preaching the gospel. But our hearts have been so affected by sin that even after we've become Christians, our hearts can begin to grow cold towards the gospel. It's really amazing that, that even though we've put all our eggs into this basket, our eternal destiny depends on this message and whether this message is true or not. And even though it's that important, our sinful hearts can begin to look at the gospel as something stale. The gospel, I've got that. Let's talk about something else. It's sad that we could ever feel like that, and so we need to regularly pray that God would help us feel afresh the wonders and the glories of the gospel. Now, we're going to see it in verses 13 through 15, and as we come to these verses, we see that we're still talking about Abraham. Abraham was a sinner, like you and like me. He was a pagan. He was a worshiper of the moon god. 
And yet the true God broke into his life and spoke to him and radically changed him. One of the great promises that God made to Abraham was that Abraham would be made the heir of the world. You see that in verse 13? Verse 13, Abraham had the promise that he would be heir of the world. What does that mean? Well, it means exactly what we saw last week in verses 11 and 12. That Abraham was being made the father of a whole world of people who would know God and walk in God's ways. Genesis 17 is what Paul has in his mind in these verses. Genesis 17 is what Paul saw being fulfilled in his day, still being fulfilled in our day. Remember Genesis 17. In fact, go there with me real quick so you can see the the backdrop of what Paul's dealing with. Look at Genesis 17. This is crucial to, to understanding this rightly. Genesis 17, Abram is 99 years old. And the Lord appears to him. We aren't told how the Lord appeared to him. It may have been through an appearance of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ as the angel of the Lord. But however it happened, God appeared to Abram, 99 years old. What does he say right there at the beginning of the chapter? I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So he's making a covenant with Abram. He's making a promise to Abram. What's Abram's response to God? Then Abram fell on his face. He didn't trip. This was an appropriate response. This is the kind of response we ought to have should the Lord appear to us. Here is God appearing to Abram. Here is God proclaiming a covenant to Abram. Abram is on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So what was the promise? The promise was that God was going to make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. And then God gives two signs to show how serious he is. First, he changes Abram's name to Abraham. Abram meant um, exalted father. Abraham means father of of a multitude. So he confirms the promise with this change of name. It's it's as if God is saying, Abraham, this is now who you are. You don't see it yet, Abraham. But I have decreed it, and it is so. You are the father of a multitude. Nations shall come from you. The second sign was that of circumcision. This was a painful sign for Abraham, but it was a visible sign that would be in Abraham's body that this promise was going to come true. Nations would call Abraham father. And in this way, he would be heir of the world. Abraham was to circumcise his sons. They were to circumcise their sons and the next generation of sons and the next generation of sons and so on. Why? For the very reason Paul taught in Romans 4.13. To preach to them God's promise that their father Abraham would indeed one day be the father 
of many nations. In other words, Jews, it isn't all about you. God is going to work through you. God is going to work through the coming one, Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ. And God is going to save the nations. Gentiles will have the faith of Abraham. People will be saved from every nation. Abraham will be their father. They won't have Abraham's blood in their veins, but they'll have the same Holy Spirit in their hearts and the same faith pulsing in their souls that Abraham had. So Paul says in Romans 4.16 that Abraham is the father of us all. That is, it doesn't matter if you're a Jewish Christian or if you're a Gentile Christian, Abraham is your father. For it is by faith that we're connected to Abraham and that the promises made to Abraham become our promises too. Abraham was promised that he and his offspring would dwell in a promised land of eternal blessing. Canaan was a shadow, but the new heavens and the new earth, those are the real thing. This is the true land of eternal blessing. But church, listen to me. The promise of an eternal, glorious land flowing with milk and honey, that promise was made to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring. Which means if you want to have heaven, you either need to be Abraham or one of Abraham's offspring. You say, Justin, why does it matter who is, can call Abraham father? It matters because the promises were for Abraham and his offspring. If you're not numbered among the offspring, the promises aren't yours. This means you should care a lot about whether or not Abraham can be considered your father. And so I would ask you, is he? Is Abraham your father? Are you a part of the offspring of Abraham? See, I don't know. How do I know? Well, how can you become one of Abraham's true offspring? Must you become a Jew by submitting to the Mosaic law, being circumcised if you're a guy? Is is it being a fleshly Jew that matters? No. For as Paul will later say in Romans, not all Israel is Israel. That is, not even all the Jews who do have Abraham's blood, who have submitted to the Mosaic law, who have been circumcised, not even all of them are really Abraham's offspring. Being connected to Abraham by blood means nothing. Pharisees come to John the Baptist. They want to be baptized. John the Baptist refuses. He looks at the Pharisees in the eyes and he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. In other words, it is God who makes someone a child of Abraham. And it isn't blood that matters. So what matters? Who are the offspring of Abraham who who get to have all of these glorious promises of God? Listen very carefully to Galatians 3, 7 through 9. This is very clear. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The Scripture, 
foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So God promised to bless Abraham. Abraham dwells with God this very moment. Abraham will dwell with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And all who are Abraham's offspring by faith will experience this salvation. But why is it this way? Why is it by faith? Go back to Romans 4 if you're not there. Look at Romans 4 verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Just so you know, that phrase did not come. You see those three words, did not come. That's, that's not actually in the Greek. In fact, Paul doesn't use a verb in this entire sentence. A lot of commentators think he was very excited when he wrote this and that he just, just didn't use a verb. Literally what Paul says about the promise in verse 13 is this. Not through law, through righteousness of faith. It's literally what he says. The promises of God, not through law, through righteousness of faith. What does that mean? I think it means this. The promise that God made to Abraham can only come true through faith and not through law keeping. The way of the promises of God coming true in Abraham's life and any of Abraham's offspring life must be faith, not law-keeping. Law-keeping will never work. Here's the problem. God made all of these glorious promises to bless Abraham and to bless his offspring. But God is holy. Abraham is a sinner. Abraham's offspring are sinners. Our sins are an offense to the justice of God and demand that God's wrath be poured out upon us. So how can God be holy and yet treat these criminals with such blessing? Isn't God doing the very opposite of what His holiness demands? Shouldn't He be coming to Abraham and saying, I am going to curse you, rather than saying, I'm going to bless you? And this applies to us. How can God treat us who are sinners with such blessing? Surely His justice demands the opposite. So how does God solve this problem? How does God solve the fundamental riddle of salvation? How can He be just and bless people who are sinners? One answer cannot work. Law-keeping does not solve the riddle. This is why law-keeping cannot bring the promises. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Hear what Paul was saying. 
First, he says that if salvation is by law keeping, if, if law keepers are heirs, then faith is null. It has no purpose. You see, if the way that we can get God to bless us, the way for God to be holy and yet bless us is that we keep the law and somehow by our law keeping make Him just in blessing us, then faith has no role in the matter. Works matters. Deeds matter. Meriting God's favor matters. Faith is null. But faith can't be null because how is Abraham saved? Abraham believed and it was counted as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. So Paul says, number one, law keeping cannot work because Abraham is the father of us all. The way he saved is the way we're saved and the way he was saved was by faith. So any way of salvation that says faith is null, any way of salvation that puts faith to the side, that can't be the right way of salvation. Second, he says, if this is how it works, the promise becomes void. That is God's promise and God's promise to Abraham's offspring of being their God, of blessing them forever, of a new heavens and a new earth, an eternal country where they will live in blessing forever. All of that promise is empty. It cannot come true. Why? Because law keeping does not solve the problem of God's holiness. No matter how well you try and keep the law, you cannot make yourself good enough that God will be justified in blessing you. You cannot make yourself good enough that God can can be right in blessing you. Jews, some of the Jews in Paul's day thought that Paul should be going to the nations that Paul should be going to the nations preaching Jesus and declaring that Gentiles needed to become Jews themselves. They needed to submit themselves to the Old Testament law. They needed to begin keeping the Old Testament law and that somehow by keeping the Old Testament law, it would make God right to save them where if they didn't keep the Old Testament law, God would not be right to save them. In their minds, God could not remain a holy covenant-keeping God and save people who weren't keeping the law. In their minds, law-keeping solved the problem, but it doesn't. Paul says the opposite. He says, going to the Gentiles, and that's you and me, folks, demanding that they submit to the Old Testament law would only make the situation worse. Rather than making it right for God to bless us, Putting people under the law actually makes it harder for God to bless us. Look at verse 15. And he'll explain it. For the law brings what? Wrath. In other words, the law does not somehow make us more acceptable to God. Just the opposite. The law just reveals all the more how utterly undeserving, how utterly sinful we are. Remember Romans 3.30? Nobody will be made right with God through the law. The purpose of the law is to show our wickedness. More than that, when sinners like you and me have the law placed upon us, it only increases the wrath we deserve. Look at the rest of verse 15. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Transgression, by the way, is the breaking of a law. So where there is no law, 
You can't have a transgression. You must have law to break a law. Gentiles who were not under the Old Testament law, they still sinned, but at least they did not transgress the Old Testament law. By having the law, the Jews had a great privilege, but not only did they have this great privilege of the law given to them by God to show them what it was right, but they also had a higher responsibility before God. Not only were the Jews sinners, but now having received the law of God, they were transgressors against the law they had received. They had on tablets of stone and in scrolls of Scripture the very Word of God telling them how to live. The law was no longer this subjective thing tied to their consciences. It was in black and white, so to speak. It was a clear guide for them. The law was a great gift, but their hearts were sinful, just like ours, and so they acted against that law, and in doing so, they made themselves even more culpable before God. In other words, giving people the Old Testament law and saying, submit to this, and that will somehow make God right to bless you? No, Because they're going to break that law and they're going to be all the more culpable before God. And God has all the more reason not to bless. Law does not solve the problem of how can God be just and save sinners. So you see, trying to make Gentiles submit to the Old Testament law is not going to make it easier for God to save them. It actually makes it harder for God to save them. It makes their sin in God's sight even worse. It makes them even more undeserving of the promises. Okay. Well, then how is the problem solved? If it's not law-keeping... How can God be just and save sinners? How can God be righteous? How can God be God? And bless these sinners and fulfill these promises to Abraham and his offspring that they so don't deserve. The answer, of course, is that a person becomes righteous in God's sight another way. God cannot bless an unrighteous person. His holiness demands that he love what is good, that he bless what is good, that he pour out his favor on what is good, that he curse what is evil, that he hate what is evil, that he pour out his curses on what is evil. We cannot be evil and have God's blessing. We must be righteous. If it's not going to happen by law keeping, we've got to be righteous some other way. And so there's the glorious gospel of people being made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The answer was in verse 13. You can see it again, right? Through the righteousness of faith. Jesus Christ did everything necessary for us who are sinners to be counted righteous in the sight of God. He lived as our representative, if we're His, He represented us for 33 years, accomplished a perfect righteousness that is then imputed to our account the moment we first believe. Jesus died on the cross for all believers as their substitute, bearing the guilt of their sin, fully absorbing the punishment. 
So that the moment a person believes on Jesus, they are declared righteous in God's sight by virtue of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here is God's answer to how He can be just and the justifier. It's called Jesus Christ. God the Father has placed His Son at the very center of salvation. You have Christ and it all works. And God is glorified and we are blessed. You lose Christ and it all falls apart like a house of cards. Law keeping is not the answer, but Jesus Christ, His person and work, is the answer. This is how Abraham received the promises of God. He didn't work for them. He believed. He believed God's promises. He believed in the coming one that was to come. His own seed that would save his soul. This is how it must be for us too. We believe on Christ. Trust that he has done everything necessary. And we are saved. Now, implications for us of these verses. Number one, the immediate context application was that neither Paul nor any other missionary was to go to Gentile peoples and tell them they must submit to Old Testament law to be saved. Folks, you got to realize this was a huge issue in the early church. You and I think, well, you know, it's not such a big deal. It was huge in the early church. This was the, yes, the battle, the fundamental theological battle of the early church was about this issue of what's required for salvation. Is it faith alone or is it faith plus obedience to the Mosaic law? Look with me at Acts 15 real quick. Acts 15. Let me just show you how important this was. Begin reading in verse 1. Acts 15 and verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Note this next part. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. These aren't unsaved Pharisees like we saw most in the the Gospels. These are Christians who belonged to the Pharisee party of the day who had come to think, yes, Jesus, believing in Jesus is necessary for salvation, but so is obedience to the law. It is necessary, they said, it is necessary to order them to keep the law of Moses. How can God save them if they're not keeping the law? They had it completely backwards. How can God save them when they're trying to keep the law and clearly they can't? No one can. 
It did not help the Jews that they had the law. It did not cause them to be more right with God. It only increased their culpability. The law does not justify people in God's sight. The law actually aggravates sin. The law heightens our sin. The law shows our guiltiness. The law is a gift because it brings us to Christ. But the law has no part in our salvation. The Jerusalem Council met together in Acts 15. They tackled this question. They agreed with Paul's position. They agreed with Paul and Barnabas. They sent out a letter to these early churches, particularly to the Christians in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. And the letter informed those new Gentile Christians they should flee from sexual, idol- from sexual immorality. They should flee from idolatry. They should seek to live holy lives. But they were not required to be circumcised. They were not required to submit to the Old Testament and law. Real repentance, real turning away from sin, yes, taking the yoke of the Old Testament law upon you, no, because salvation is by faith and faith alone. You say, Justin, that's not really an issue in our day. There's not a lot of people out there preaching that to be saved you must take the Old Testament law upon you the way they were in Paul's day. There's not too many... Christian sects out there in our culture saying we must celebrate the feast days. In fact, not too long after the book of Romans was written, Jerusalem itself was destroyed and the temple completely obliterated. Ancient Israel and the Mosaic law, that that nation that existed of Old Testament Israel ceased to exist. And, And in this way, God more or less confirmed that Paul's position was right and that Paul's gospel was true. That said, the false teaching that was at the heart of this is still present in our day. Put simply, it was that we must somehow merit God's favor in order for Him to be right to bless us. And folks, there are many false doctrines in our day that say you must somehow merit God's favor. Don't believe them. I don't know any other way to say it. Just don't don't believe them. That is not the gospel. It is not the truth. This is our second implication. We must never think that we can somehow merit God's blessing. We must never think that we can in any way earn salvation. What are some things that people in our day claim to be necessary for salvation besides faith? Right? In their day... It is necessary that they be circumcised. It is necessary that they be ordered to keep the Mosaic Law. What do people in our day say is necessary for you to be a Christian? Necessary for God to bring His blessings upon you? One denomination claims baptism is necessary. Apart from the rite of baptism, God cannot save you. You cannot have the promises of God. Another denomination says you must have spoken in tongues. If you haven't experienced speaking in tongues, you are not truly saved. God is not right to save you and you will not be blessed. There are many others. Often it's our own hearts that get pulled into believing these kinds of things. We sin and then we think to ourselves, surely... I cannot be right with God the way I am now. Let me get my act together. Let me fix this in my life. Then I'll come to Jesus. As long as you think that way, you are far from Jesus because Jesus came to save sinners, not the righteous. Sometimes we act as though we've lost our salvation because of something we've done. I didn't read my Bible enough this week. 
I failed to pray yesterday. I committed that sin again. Surely I'm not right with God anymore. But friend, we are not saved by anything we do and therefore we cannot lose our salvation by anything we do. Our being right with God depends on Jesus Christ alone and our faith in Him. And even that faith is a gift. So the question I have for you is this. Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? This moment, are you resting in Christ? Are you seeking to follow Jesus? Yes, you'll fall down. Yes, you'll still sin. But are you seriously looking to Jesus in faith, coming to Him as a disciple to a teacher, coming to Him as a sinner to a Savior? If you are walking by faith in Jesus Christ, you are truly saved and there is nothing else necessary. No ritual, no work. Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. We're getting ready to sing a hymn in a moment, but first I want you to listen to some of the words that we're going to sing. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Your voice alone, O Lord, can speak to me of grace. Your power alone, O Son of God, can all my sins erase. No other work but Yours. No other blood will do. No strength but that which is divine can bear me safely through. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to Thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine, and with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. His cross dispels each doubt. I bury in His tomb each thought of unbelief and fear, each lingering shade of gloom. I praise the God of grace. I trust His truth and might. He calls me His. I call Him mine. My God, my joy and light. Tis He who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because He loveth me. I live because He lives. Our salvation rests 100% on Jesus Christ and Him alone. Is your soul resting in Him? Pray it is. Let's pray. Take a few moments now and just speak to the Father. Ask Him to apply to your soul what you've heard this morning.